Okay, so let's see. Romans chapter 7. Um, are, you, are you ready? You ready? Okay. And I'm too, I got an extra two minutes this morning, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use all of it, all right? So, but, but I want to orient us uh, for, for just a second and, and lay some groundwork for Romans chapter 7 um, but because I, I think, so if you took Romans chapter 6 and then Romans chapter 7 and Romans chapter 8, so these three chapters, they're what um, we traditionally call sanctification chapters. So after Paul has labored the point about um, uh, you know, our, our sinfulness and our, our needs, the, the needs that we have, uh, as you know, we're, we're burdened by sin. We're all, we're all under the conviction of sin. We're, we're, we're all um, haunted by death. I mean, nobody outruns death. Death is one um, against everybody since, the, um, since Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, uh, except for Jesus. Um, so, so sin is a problem. Death is a problem. This morning we look at, at law being a problem. But so he talks about um, here's our problems. Um, this is the solution that God um, uh, provided. This solution of justification and, and how we are made right with God. We're, we realize there's not anything we could have done. We, we are absolutely, utterly incapable of making ourselves right with God. And so God sent his son out of eternity into history to do what we couldn't do, to die the death that we deserved so that we could be made right by God. And we receive this as a gift from God by faith. And so that's how we're justified. That's how we're made right. And he picks that up in the uh, sort of the end of chapter 3 and gives us chapter 4 and chapter 5 to explain what it means that God did everything and we receive what it is that God has done through Jesus by faith. Well, when you get to chapter 6, what Paul is now addressing, um, he's looking at, okay, if, if this is true, if this is a legal reality, this has happened to you, how does, how does that look in your life now? You know, in Romans 5, you, you, you were born into one kingdom, the, the, the kingdom of Adam, the, uh, under the tyranny of law and the tyranny of death and, and the tyranny of sin. And, and you died to that and you were raised again into a new kingdom and, 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 uh, where, where Christ reigns. And, and now you're, you're a new creation and a new kingdom and a new reality. How does this look in your life? How do you experience it? That's sanctification. And when we, when we talk about this, so from a literary standpoint, um, what Paul is going to say in Romans chapter 7 is really, I mean, it's, it's startling. I mean, there are a lot of shocking passages throughout Scripture, and every now and then I say, oh, this is a shocking passage. I would say that what Paul says in Romans chapter 7, overall is maybe one of the, shock, maybe the most shocking passage in all of Scripture, and as you take it in the flow of chapter 6, how does this legal reality of standing right before God work itself out in our life? It, it, it's really breathtaking. And it's hard to take in all in one, one breath. I mean, you, you read it and you think, I... What, what is he saying here? And so you, you press in more and, and, and more. And it's been rightly said. So the gospel, it is shallow enough for children to play in. And at the same time, it is, 
is deep enough for the strongest swimmer among us to drown. And there are times, I think there are places when it comes to God's word where we're invited by the Holy Spirit to come and swim in the, in the deep water. My, my friend in, in seminary, um, had a friend in seminary, he, he used to uh, read these cheap paperback science fiction novels, you know, during the week. He'd go pick them up at the used bookstore for about a dollar and He'd read them in between all the theological reading and, and stuff like that that he was doing. Um, and he did it because he called them popcorn readings. You know, he could just, he could just read it. It, was, it would allow his mind to go into rest. And, you know, he didn't have to think about anything. He just let his imagination go. And, uh, you know, he didn't have to work hard at understanding anything. Um, and so there were, you know, there were these popcorn books. But I fear, to use his language, that we kind of are in danger of becoming popcorn people. Let me think about this for a second. <clears throat> I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but it, it very possibly could be we're, we're the most literate, most educated generation of people in the history of the world anywhere on the planet. And most people in this generation do not have an attention span more than 140 characters at a time. I mean, if it's not in a Facebook post or not in a tweet or, you know, not pretty on a, on a Pinterest thing, you know, uh, man, we, that's how we want information. We want it bite-sized. We, we want it to come to us, you know, easy. And, and I realize it, and so now I'm sounding like, you know, like an old grandpa, and I don't mean to. I mean, I love technology. I mean, I do. I love efficiency. I love all those things. But I don't know. I think if we approach the Bible that way, so we miss out. Cal Newport, his book he wrote called Deep Work, he said, listen, we're in real danger. Um, uh, you know, one of the things all this smartphone and, and, and social media generation has done is it has chipped away at our capacity, he says, to concentrate and to contemplate. It's chipped away at our capacity to do that. And, and the thing is, I, I can't turn back those tides. I'm not even interested in doing it. But when we come to places in Scripture, there are places in Scripture where we are, we are bid to, we, we are invited to, to come and to, and to sort of drink deeply and to rest and to concentrate and to contemplate. This is one of those places. You, you could spend the rest of your life in, in Romans 6 and 7 and 8 working out the depth of grace that Paul is talking about. And so, so we're not just going to read over it real quick. You're going to think, man, he's, just, he, he's going so slow. Yes, I'm on purpose. We're going to spend a couple of weeks here because what Paul says is radically transforming for us. It is no less relevant today than it was 2,000 years ago. No less relevant today. And, and so uh, th that's what we're going to do. I, I want to I look at it. I'm going to read the first six verses of Romans 7, which is this illustration that Paul's going to give us about marriage. I'm going to read that, and then we're going to go back through, and we're going we're to talk about it, and I want to 
orient you to some other things that Paul is saying here in Romans 7. So, Romans chapter 7, beginning verse 1, here's what he says. It says, Do you not know, brothers, or brothers and sisters? For I'm speaking to those who know the law. That the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. So, this is the thesis, okay? Then he says, For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage accordingly. She will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she's free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you have also died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we're released from the law, having died to that which held us captive so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. If you would, would you bow with me? Father, I pray your word would do its work this morning and that we'd, we'd peer into it and, and, Father, your Spirit would help us to understand it and that it would not return void in Jesus' name. Amen. A couple of things to remind you about as we talking about sanctification, I need to remind you about justification. And so, three things to remind you. One, justification, your being made right with God, is a divine miracle of God. It's not something you work up to. It's not something you work into. It's not something you, you know, it, 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 if you're justified, meaning you, you've been made right with God, it's because God has done something, not you. He has accomplished something. He has declared something about you. And, and you connect with that. You receive that by believing him. Secondly, I would say justification is not an experience. So, so you may experience justification. You may experience being saved. You, you may experience all of that. But, but justification is this legal reality. And it doesn't matter if you feel justified or not. Justification happens to the believer at the moment you trust Jesus. And, and there's no such thing as somebody just being partly justified or, you know, halfway justified. I mean, you're justified or you're not justified. But it is not your experience that informs that. Thirdly, justification means that your salvation is eternally secure. It must be. Because it doesn't rest on you. It is entirely and completely a work of God on your behalf. 
And, and so as we think about sanctification, as we think about what it is to, to grow into who we already are in Christ as believers, as we think about what does it mean to experience this, this transformation I don't want us to evaluate or grade this transformation and go, well, well, you know, I'm not doing very well today, so maybe I'm not justified. No, no, no. Our sanctification is based on our justification. Our justification is not based on our sanctification. Okay. So what Paul's going to do is he's going to say, listen, you... you Remember in, in chapter 6, we, 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 we died to sin. You've been set free from sin. In chapter 6, verse 11, you're, you're, you're dead to sin and alive to God. It is what happened to you at the moment of conversion. And then he goes on to say, you're not under the law, you're under grace. Chapter 6, how to be saved from sin. Chapter 7, he's going to talk about how to be saved from the law. This is the, the, the law of, of God. The, the demands upon your life to, to live to a, to a standard that God has set. And Paul's going to say, you have been freed from that. See, the flesh, your, your old self, it, it's no less corrupt now that you've become a believer than it was before you were a believer. See, sanctification is not the improvement of the flesh. It's not, you know, it's not the external forces you know, of the law and all these things producing this behavior change that, that then an inner change is going gonna, is gonna to follow. Sanctification, in other words, it's not behavior modification. It happens from the inside out. So, so if I asked you a question, what is Christianity primarily about? What's it primarily about? There's a lot of people that would answer things like, well, it's, it's reading the Bible and, and doing what it says. So some might say, well, it's, it's, it's staying away from sin and doing what's right. Or trying to live like Jesus lived. Maybe someone would say, well, it's the golden rule. I mean, you do unto others what you would have done unto you. But I would say this morning, if your answer is one of those, or, or if it has anything to do primarily with what I would call the standards of God, that if Christianity somehow in your mind is about the standards of God and conforming to the standards of God. You desperately need Romans 7 this morning. Because in order for this to be dealt with rightly, here's the deal. We should leave verse 6 this morning. And, and, and we get done with verse 6. There ought to be some kind of question in our mind or, or we should be left with some impression that says, oh, okay, I see what you're saying. The law, the, the law, um, the, the, even the, the law of God, it's a bad thing. The law of God's a bad thing. If, if you come to that conclusion at the end of verse 6, I haven't failed. 
And you know why I haven't failed? Because look at verse 7. This is what Paul says. If you've got your Bibles, look at verse 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? And he'll say, well, by no means. But there is something about what he's going to say in 1 through 6 that might lead us to go, oh, okay, well, the law then is bad if we understand what he says rightly. Now, he'll answer it and say, no, it's not bad. But for us to feel the weight of how radical what Paul is saying really is, then we have to hear what it is that he means. Listen, Christianity, um, what, what Paul's going to say in 1 through 6, he, he's going to force us to make a choice between the Son of God and the standards of God. And you say, what? Well, this seems like a false choice. Well, let me explain that in a minute. That, that he wants us to come to a place where we would choose between the Son of God and the standard of God's. Standard of God. It's not about necessarily abandoning one for the other, but it is a question of what is the priority. Because listen, Christianity is primarily about, it is not primarily about a moral ethic. It is about a living person. It's not primarily about doing what is right. It is primarily about being released to what is supernatural. It is not primarily about dutiful obedience to the commands of God. It is primarily about a deepening love affair with the Son of God. When we become preoccupied with the Son of God, knowing Jesus, knowing Him, pressing into Him, loving Him, the standards of God, they, those take care of themselves. But if the standard of God becomes our priority, if it becomes our preoccupation, and how we're doing, and, and did we do enough, and did, did, we, did we not do all the other things? And, and it, when, we, when that becomes our focus, our relationship with the Son of God doesn't take care of itself. It'd be like this, to use the marriage analogy. You could read all about marriage. You could read all the books. You could master all the content. You could do all the things that the book said to do about marriage. And somehow convince yourself, you know what? I have a great marriage because I do all the things. And yet in that, you have forsaken knowing the one you're married to. You, you've forsaken pressing into and knowing who that person is and what they think. You mastering content about something doesn't mean that you know anything. All right, so that's the, that's the, 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 the issue. We, we, we are under 
We're no longer under law. We are under grace. And his thesis here um, is in Romans 7, 1, and he says that the, the law here at the end of 7, 1, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives or she lives. Now, this word binding is interesting. So, so we miss it in the ESV, but it is the same word that he uses in Romans 6, 9 when he says, death Death no longer has dominion over you. It's the word curio. It's, it's the word for Lord. It no longer is your master. Death is no longer your master. It is also the same word he uses in 614 when he says sin. Sin doesn't have dominion on you anymore over you. Sin doesn't master you. It is not your Lord anymore. So here in 7.1, what he's saying is the law. The law is your Lord. It is your master. It has ownership and rights over you. As long as you live. What you see is that Paul now has lumped law in with sin and death. Sin and death and law. It's this trinity of tyranny, if you will, that hounds you. And Paul's saying, listen, as long as you're alive in this kingdom, which means this, this in Adam, this, this, this way you were born into, the law is binding over you. It is master over you. Martin Luther said it this way. He said, the law says, do this. And it's never done. Grace says, believe this. And everything's already done. And that's the difference. The death of Christ has set you free from the dominion of death it has set you free from the dominion of sin. And it has set you free from the dominion of the law. You live in a new kingdom now, under, an, under a new leader, under a new king, as a new person, a new creation. And there are these relationships. We, we, verse 3, we're going to be free from the law. Verse 4, we're dead to the law. Verse 6, we're released from the law. And so Paul, in verse 2, he's going to move into this. This is the illustration. I'm going to illustrate it with a married woman. Now, you can use marriage for lots of illustrations. He uses it in Ephesians 5 to speak about, so, so you know, the love of Christ, our relationship with Christ, how, how Christ loves the church. And all, he illustrates that with marriage. Here, he's illustrating marriage, um, illustrating this, this legal binding of the law over you with marriage. Because when you're married, and particularly in this day, you, you were legally bound to the nature of marriage. Law bound you to marriage. That's why at the beginning of wedding ceremonies, I say things like marriage is not something to be entered into lightly. That's why marriage vows end with something like, you know, till death do us part or as long as we both shall live. 
Socially, morally, legally, you're bound by marriage to another when you are married. And it is illegal, particularly here, it is illegal to have another intimate relationship while the one to whom the law has bound you is alive. But Paul says here, when this particular woman's husband dies, she is released from the law. It, is this, it means to annul or to destroy. It's the strongest possible way of saying that a bond has been broken because it has been destroyed completely. She has a new status. She's completely free. And with all that means to pursue another relationship. There are no hindrances whatsoever. So in verse 3, um, he explains how all this goes. And in the argument is going to be that, that we have died to the law. And it no longer binds us. And, and the reason that it no longer binds us is that as good as the law is, and, and he's say later, it's good, the law doesn't have the power to change us. So, so it, it serves, he's going to say, the law aggravates in us the sinful nature that we have. It reveals about us our rebellion against God, but it cannot save us. It cannot make us righteous. It cannot redeem us. Listen, the law cannot change us. You have to hear that last. It cannot change you. The law does not change you. What the law does is it binds you to a legal reality. It reveals your sinfulness and then it weds you legally to the obligation of death. The law demands death for your breaking of it. You're only obligated, you're only bound to the law as long as you're alive. Once you die, you're no longer bound. Dead men don't sin. Dead men aren't bound by the law. And this external force, this external power of the law is gone. It has been replaced, he's going to say at the end of 6, with this internal empowerment of the Spirit. Now, beginning in verse 4, look, look, look with me. So, so our, he's going to say that our death to the law, that this freedom from its captivity, brings about a new relationship with, with the Trinity, with the triune God. Well, we die to the law so that we belong to Christ, he's going to say. We've been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. Verse 6, we've been released from the law so that we serve in the new way in the, in the Spirit. And, and if you look in, in, in verse 4, he says, he says likewise. And um, so, so, be honest with you for a second. This is where Paul's analogy with marriage gets a little bit tricky. So think about this. Um, what Paul has done is he's given you an analogy of marriage where he says, hey, so this woman, this particular woman, she is bound to her husband by the law of marriage. 
But then the husband dies, and she's been set free from the law. It's okay, I get that. <laughs> but now what Paul's going to do is he's going to make an illustration, and he's going to mix up all the parts of it. So, so I, listen, what I don't want you to think is that Paul is somehow like some regular Joe Schmo preacher. I mean, you've heard me before. I'll get into an illustration, and then I'll find myself in a cul-de-sac. <laughs> and I don't know how to get out of it. And so I just say some nonsense and move on and hope you forget about it, and then I don't say it the second hour and, you know, all that stuff. But, but that is not what Paul is doing. But Paul wants to make a point. Listen, death changes things. But the law doesn't die. In fact, he, he's going to be sure. He's not killing off the law. You're the one that's going to die. And when you die with Christ, because you're united with him, and then you're raised again with him, you died to the law that had dominion over you. And so it no longer has dominion over you. Paul will say in verse 5, something that is very radical, and I want to look at it. He's going to say this, for while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, and then notice what he says. You see that? They were aroused by the law. The law now, he says, no longer arouses the sinful passions like it did when we were in the flesh. Because when the law aroused those sinful passions, it had consequences and we bore fruit for death. The prevailing view in Paul's day was this, though. In fact, the Mishnah said it, the more Torah, which is the law, the more Torah, the more life. Well, what they believed was that the law, if you knew the law and you, and you loved the law and you followed the law, that it had the ability to counteract the sinful impulses that were inside of you. And that what you did with the sinfulness that you would feel rising to the top and you're always trying to squash down, is you needed more law. Because the more law, the more life. Sin brought death and, and the law would bring you life. But Paul is saying, listen, he says, no, no, no. I know for 1,500 years you thought that. It's not how it works. The law doesn't bring you life. You know what the law does? It arouses in you more desire for sin. And you say, well, how can that be? Do you remember when you were in elementary school and um, your teacher would leave the room? And she would say, now, I'm going to leave the room. Now I want you to be quiet. Keep your hands to yourself. 
and do your work. And then she'd put some poor kid in charge. And Jimmy, he's going to be watching you. And so all of a sudden, Jimmy became the law. Well, you know what? I didn't know I hated Jimmy. And all of a sudden, aroused in me was the desire to sharpen my pencil, grab a rubber band, and shoot that pointed pencil at Jimmy like an arrow. Didn't even know I wanted to do that. The law aroused in me this sinful passion. It did not keep me from sinning. It didn't keep me from having these feelings. You know what it did? It produced these feelings in me. You know this. But when we die to the law, we're no longer held captive by that. We no longer serve the law. We no longer do its bidding. That's why he begins in verse 6. But now a new era has begun. A new chapter in the work of God. A, a new... Uh, uh, the, the new section, the, 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 new, the, the, the new coming of, of, of his redemptive plan, that it was planned all along. The new covenant. The hope we always longed for. But now, we are released from the law. But Paul will say, in Galatians 2.19, he says this, for the law, for, for through the law, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. And he says, for it's no longer I that live, but Christ that lives in me. Because see, here's the deal. The law demands death for those who break it. But Jesus comes along in, the, in the, the vicarious substitutionary death, the death, your death, that he dies becomes your death through faith. Through the law to the law. The law, Paul's going to say, listen, it's holy and it's righteous and it's good. And we know it because it comes from God and so it could be no other. But the problem was never God's law. You know what the problem was? You were the problem. I was the problem. Humanity was the problem. In the word of God, it's, it's living, it's active, it's sharper than a two-edged sword. It, it pierces down inside of us. It, it gets in it, it dissects us. The law was never meant to save you. That's why Paul will say in a very similar way in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6, that the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. See, if you, if you read, so, ah, if I can, you hear me say this, I, now I'm going to keep saying it until everyone I know realizes it. The, you don't, the Bible doesn't say, hey, read me so that you can become a better person. 
Bible's not interested in you becoming a better person. You know what the Bible's interested in? Killing you. Putting you to death. And then raising you to new life. Breathing the power of the Spirit in you. Rendering you dead to the old man. And bringing you to life in the Spirit. The letter kills. The Spirit gives life. The letter does not improve you. It makes you dead. And the Spirit of God comes. And you hear God. I can tell you, if you wanted to look, you could look at Exodus chapter 32, verse 28. Moses comes off the Mount of Sinai. With the law of God. And you know what, you know what Exodus 32, 28 tells us that when Moses comes down with the law of God, it says 3,000 people died that day. The law brought death. You know what happens in Acts chapter 2, verse 41? When Peter, for the first time, publicly proclaims the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus as the way of salvation, that the Spirit comes. You know what the text says? 3,000 souls came to life. They were born again. The letter kills. The Spirit gives Life. And Paul's saying, because of your faith in Christ, you died with him, you've been raised with him, you're no longer under the power of the law, the dominion of the law, the lordship of the law, the mastery of the law. You are now in Christ. The law had you dead to rights. Now it has no power over you. Only, let me see if I can give you a bad illustration of this. Guy goes on trial for murder. He's convicted. Sentenced to death. He's executed. Medical examiner confirms his death. He signs the death decree. Punishment has been administered. Penalty paid. Justice executed. The law is satisfied. And he's dead for three days, but then he comes back to life. Resurrects from the dead, walks out of the morgue, is arrested, brought back before the judge for the murder that he had committed. But the judge declares the law has done what it can do. He's already been punished. Justice has already been satisfied. And you know why? Because there's no provision for resurrection in the law. No provision for new life in the law. You've died satisfied. And now you've been raised to new life. And so it is no longer I that live, but Christ that lives in me. And so our life now is pointed forward and it is motivated and empowered by God's Spirit 
for the purpose of bearing fruit for God. So what does it look like? I think for us, we, we have to remind ourselves often that there is a vast difference between living life by a list or living life to a person. It is the difference between a person you can know or a performance that you must achieve. It is the difference between delighting and a duty. It is the difference between life and law. The difference between a relationship and a legal obligation. There is the external code of the law, God's moral precepts. It's the old way. It's just an action. This is what you do. There is now a new way. You have been raised to a new kingdom, a new with new desires. There is now this internal desire. God's law is written in your heart, and the Spirit inclines your heart. You have new desires. It's the difference between being commanded and being enabled. The law commands you, but it enables you with no power for obedience. The Spirit come, comes and it enables you and empowers you and encourages you and energizes you. The Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. He dwells in you. He empowers you. It's the difference between hostility, which before we were saved, the commands of the law, they provoked us, they incited us, they aroused our passions. There is now, instead of hostility, there is delight. Because the Spirit causes us to delight. It's the difference between fear, if you don't obey, fear of being punished, or fear of not having God's favor, but now there's gratitude because it shows us that in God's grace, we are loved, we are accepted, we are counted right. So we don't have to work for what we already have. It's the difference between working for something to perform, to make yourself acceptable, never feeling like you make it, and, and now relying on the Spirit of God. He who bears witness to you that you are accepted by God because of the merit and the work of Christ, not you. And that you rely perfectly and, and completely upon all that Jesus is. Not worried about what you're not. 
but complete in him. And you don't have to work to try to make it. You live with the confidence you've already made it. Here's some things to know. We'll get into it next week and there's more to say. The law is not evil. It's good. Oh, the law is good. And it's important and beautiful. And we'll talk about that. But it was never given to save you. And it was not given to sanctify you. It was given to reveal your sin and to drive you to Jesus. In the New Testament, both the motive for keeping the law and the method for keeping the law have changed. The motive isn't to be saved or to be sanctified or, or, or to gain favor with God. The motive is now, because of all that you are in Christ, you just bring glory to God and you, and you, and you, and you serve Him and you bring honor to Him. And you get to do that because now you're acceptable. And the method is not your willpower and your self-works and your list and, and you grading yourself all the time about how I'm doing. And the method now is the provision of the Holy Spirit that indwells you. You say, well, how, how do I work that? Well, you don't. You believe by faith. You trust the Spirit. You follow the Spirit. You yield to the Spirit. You we'll talk about that more next week. The law drives us to Christ. And Christ delivers us from the law. Let me ask you this morning, How do you grade your Christianity? How do you tell how you're doing following Jesus? The answer for most of us is probably, well, I, I grade myself on how well I'm doing or not doing. Have I done all the things I said I would do? Have I not done the things I said I wouldn't do? And, and let me just say, if that is how you are grading how you're doing, you are a miserable wretch. No, no, no. Paul says you're a miserable wretch. I'm just a fellow miserable wretch with you. You have been freed from that. How you're doing isn't based on your sanctification. It is grounded in who you are in Christ. You've been delivered from sin and death and law and raised to life. Life abundantly. All right. Work this out this week. Have these conversations. There's a thousand things you'll be tempted to talk about at that Thanksgiving dinner. You know what? 
For all the things we're thankful for, we can be thankful for what God has done through Christ. How are you doing? Listen, if you're a believer, you already made it. If you're a believer, you stand perfect in the sight of God. Now live that reality out. You have nothing to earn. It's already yours. If you would, would you bow with me and let's pray.